You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Kendra Pierre-Lewis, welcome to the show. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. So you are a senior climate reporter for the Gimlet Spotify podcast, How to Save a Planet. I've been working hard on getting all of those words in the right order. <laughs> it is a mouthful. It's definitely a mouthful. You did a good job. Um, you've also written books and in the New York Times, you've had quite a few columns. And so we're really excited to talk to you today about you call yourself uh, Kendra Gloom is my beat on Twitter. And I, could you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? <laughs> uh, it's a joke. It makes me laugh. Honestly, um, it started about five years ago, four years ago, when I was working for popular science as a climate reporter. And I sat across from another reporter, Mayor Beth Griggs, who at the time, we had this like kind of funny division of labor where she did a lot of um, kind of geological disasters. So earthquake, volcanic eruptions, that kind of thing. And I did a lot of kind of climate linked disasters. So hurricanes, floods, those sorts of things. And our editor at the time walked by and he looked at us and he was like, every time I walk by your desk, I get depressed. He said to her, you're doom. And he looked at me and he goes, you're gloom. Then like made a little Dolce & Gabbana logo for our oh, cubicles because they're right next to <laughs> each other, like D and G. And it just sort of stuck and it made me laugh. And I don't know, I think when you're covering climate change, you have to have a little bit of a sense of humor. So it is very much to me, it's very funny. I realize now increasingly that other people don't necessarily take it with humor, but I do think it's funny. It, it makes me laugh. And it's got a good backstory to me. And we have so many interesting topics to go into of things that you've covered on, on how to save a planet and in your writing. That's actually one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about, because as a climate communicator, and oftentimes your role is in educating people about these issues, how do you find a way to balance that line of like, okay, yeah, this is pretty dark stuff. And but then we need to get you informed, we need to get you to understand these issues. What have you found works? Because I, I think some people would just unplug after a while, they, it's too, too much for them. Yeah, it's interesting. And I don't I don't want anyone to kind of track the trajectory of my career, because that would be creepy. But over the course of my career, sort of starting, I think, really at pop science, sort of at the times, the times is a very specific, they call it being timesy and standards. I wasn't, I didn't get away with it as much. But, um, and then with How to Save a Planet, okay, I, I guess what I should say is that like at PopSci, um, I kind of developed this rule, which was if nobody dies, I can make it funny. Mm -hmm. um, you, okay. you don't want to make a funny story about a hurricane that has killed, you know, hundreds of people. That's not a place for humor. But I did, for example, a, a story about a conspiracy theory that sea level rise wasn't really rising. And so that story wove together the story of a bank robber who rubbed lemon juice on his face and the story and poop, a poop analogy around weight loss um, to kind of get people to understand what happened because uh, nobody was dying. So humor works, anchoring it in people's real lived experience works. And at How to Save a Planet, one of the things that's really useful is that the podcast is about climate solutions. So we talk about the problems, but it's always sort of anchored in the idea that whatever that problem is, it's actionable. And that can be an episode where the whole trajectory of the episode is about a climate solution. And a really good example about that is we did one on soil and soil's role as a climate solution. And in another example, it could be sort of a trajectory of a climate problem. And then at the end, we address the solution. I think generally recognizing that 
even if the podcast is going someplace sort of dark, that we're going to get to the light, helps people sort of digest the material. And then I think in general that like, sometimes people want to cry, but I do, I, I, I recognize and I hear, especially Pops, I, it very much felt like I almost needed to trick people to read my stuff because even if you're passionate about climate change, even if you care deeply about climate change, I often feel like people feel like they're bracing themselves for a horror story when they click on that article. And so any way that I can inject levity, any way that I can make it a little bit surprising or funny, I did um, kind of one of my first big stories when I was at the New York Times was about, this is not funny, but um, (laughs) it was about the destruction of kelp forests in Northern California um, because of you know, ocean heat waves and because the ocean heat waves triggered sort of this epidemic of a specific urchin called the purple urchin. But in keeping with my philosophy that nobody died in this story, I, I had a lot of fun with it. You know, I, I, I generally don't love anthropomizing wildlife, but there was a, this fisherman, this like person that I, one of my sources, he, he gave this huge speech at this event that I attended, this urchin calling event, and he called it the evil purple urchin. And as I was standing there, it's like that, He's like, we're here today because of the purple urchin, the evil purple urchin. And as I was like standing there, I was like this, this is the lead. I ended up writing the story months later and it was still the lead. It just had that like, you don't know where you're going with this. This is the hook that I need you. You don't know that you're ending up in this story about an ecosystem you've probably never heard of um, being destroyed, right? Like it's starting with this like kind of loving, fun hook. Like I want to know more about what makes this urchin evil. And did that work? <laughs> it totally worked. It went bananas. Um, the story went live at 5 a.m. Eastern time, and I really wasn't expecting anyone to read it. And um, a thing happens sort of when a story is doing well, they turn on comments. That's like one way that you know your story is performing. And they send you mm-hmm. a notification that they've turned comments on your story. And I woke up at like, you know, normal East Coast. I was not awake at 5 a.m. East Coast time. Uh, I woke up at a normal time and I like checked my email at like 8 a.m. or something. And I noticed that they had turned on comments. And then I immediately freaked out because it was a really technically very difficult story. And the thing that you'd like to do as a reporter when your story goes live, especially as a science journalist, is you immediately send it to your sources to make sure that you didn't screw anything up. And if you did screw it up, that you can fix it before you get a lot of eyeballs on it. Mm. But I, you know, I went kind of deep. I went kind of obsessive. Um, I talked to a lot of researchers. I think I talked to something like 13 researchers for that story. I read a lot of studies and I got the science right. And so... It did really, really well. It, people found it really, really moving and compelling, which kind of surprised me. I thought it was a weird, nerdy topic that I only I cared about. But it turns out that there's a huge interest in kelp forests. <laughs> and I think that the point about the purple urchin, I, there's something more memorable or sticky about someone being able to then tell that story to their friends or family that just finding that kind of hook that does help someone share that along does seem important in your work. Yeah. And I think in general, I try and find something that makes it compelling, whether or not it's anthropomizing um, an urchin or, um, you know, the last I, I kind of you may I don't know if you feel this way, but I personally kind of got burnt out on coral reef stories because oftentimes the way they're told mm. is they're told about a beautiful ecosystem that we're losing. And it, and they are beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege have, of seeing yeah. a coral. Yeah, they're, they are generally beautiful ecosystems. But the part I think that gets lost in that story is that they're also ecosystems that humans are incredibly, incredibly dependent on for survival. Like I'm going to forget the stat, but a really significant portion of fish either spend some time or or begin their lives in coral reefs. So as we lose coral reefs, a large proportion of the world loses the fish that is their key source of like protein. 
And so that is like a trajectory that gets lost. So like the last coral reef story I did about um, a coral bleaching event in Hawaii, the researcher, and I was doing it from New York. And so I was talking to this researcher in Hawaii and I was like, is there anyone that you can connect me with that's like really dependent on this reef for their survival? And he ended up connecting me to a gentleman who lives in what they call sort of like the last traditional village in Hawaii. And he had like a great story to tell. So finding people who have really, really just sort of loving stories. This is a little bit different, but when I was at Pops, I did a story about how nature, like wildlands are getting noisier with human sounds. I talked to this researcher who like, you know, was a lead author in the study. And funnily enough, she had been calling me from the side of the road in India. So it was like very noisy. And I was going to make that kind of like the hook. And it was kind of like ironic that she was talking about the need for quiet, but she was calling me in like a very noisy location. And then I talked to an outside expert and he ended up having this absolute banana story about like going up to the Arctic and talking to uh, an Inupak fisherman and asking him for the whales because they do traditional whaling. This is in the 1970s and asking him for the whale's ears so he could bring it back to a researcher. He said something and he was like, the ears are the the soul of a whale or something. And I was like, oh no, that's the story. <laughs> like, like that's clearly the story. And it ended up being this sort of loving tribute to silence. A lot of it is just getting people to tell their stories and, and being receptive. Like, I think for me, a lot of it is also like, I don't know, I go in knowing what the topic is and I go in knowing sort of like the why it matters, but then everything else is a blank slate. <laughs> like, like how I pitch it and what ends up on that page may not always be like the theme is the same, but what I thought going into it, I'm very willing to be derailed basically is what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I'm very willing it. to be like, oh no, I was wrong. <laughs> like that's not the way in at all. <laughs> well, you were, you were asking about if I had been in uh, or seen a coral reef. I, I went to school in college for zoology and biology and really thought I'd go down that path. And then, <laughs> and now I'm running a software company that is helping people with packaging. And it sounds like those are completely different. But to me, they're very intertwined. And there's something so challenging, I think, in general about the type of communication and education that you're doing, which is that everything is so intertwined. And when you're having to explain these things, someone may drop you, you don't know on the other side of whether it's a podcast or, or a written piece where someone's coming in and what level of knowledge they have. How do you find the right balance there or how do you approach it? Maybe with the podcast, it's a little bit easier because you can do a deep dive and try to like connect the pieces for people who are subscribers and, and listening to multiple episodes. How have you thought of that challenge? So Pop's Eye was mostly on digital. Like we had a print magazine and I did contribute to the print magazine, but on the web, there were like no limitations. I could go for as long as I right. wanted to go. But, you know, we had a resource limitation. It was a relatively small staff, relatively small editor pool. The Times, you know, print was this limitation, this idea that ultimately your story might end up in print. And so word count was a much bigger deal at the Times than it was at PopSci. And then in audio, one of the biggest challenges is that in many ways, like a, an audio script is, is a lot like reading a middle grade elementary school because there's a limit to how much information you can take in sort of auditorily and how many big ideas you can introduce. Hmm. You know, when you're reading, we moderate our intake of information. We read faster when it's a little bit easier. We read slower when things are getting complicated. We reread pretty easily. I don't know about you, but I don't rewind very often <laughs> when I listen I to them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do a little bit, but definitely it's not the same thing at all. You're kind of on this train track and you can't really move slower or faster. 
And so at Gimlet, we're very sort of narrative and story focused. And that's sort of at the end of the day, kind of like how we propel the listener forward. And you're right. One of the biggest differences, we do get multiple hits with them. And we also have a newsletter so we can follow up with more information in the newsletter. In print, if I'm communicating science, one of the things that gets lost pretty early on is, sorry to all the scientists out there, is the methodology. I don't explain how we know what we know unless it's sort of really important and salient to that story. Um, I most explain what we know and why it matters. And those are kind of the big things. And I think in general, bringing context whenever possible is really, 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 really important because otherwise it sounds like you're trying to persuade someone. And I don't think my role is to persuade someone that a kelp forest is disappearing. I think my role is to like help them understand that a kelp forest is disappearing and to understand why that matters, right? Otherwise, if I tell them that a kelp forest is disappearing, and even if they accept that, even if they're like, oh, I see the photos, I believe that this kelp forest is disappearing. And even saying the kelp forest is disappearing and it's because of climate change, that still doesn't explain why it matters. So why it matters is really important. The way it impacts livelihood, the way it impacts communities, the way it impacts recreation, that's what kind of stitches it all together. And so I think those are the three points that really, that fundamentally cross media is what you're trying to do. What is it happening why is it happening, which in general, because it might be, it's because of climate change. <laughs> and then why does it matter? What's that context? How much did they allow you to use hyperlinks as part of the explanation of something or kind of send people off over here if you want to like dig into this topic more? Is that encouraged? Yeah, PopSite, it, it was like a free for all. I could do it as much as possible. At the times, it was a little bit more limited. Generally, and this is just a rule, if you're reading a, a something that is science-based and based in a study, ideally, they will at minimum link to the study that they're referencing so you can pull it up and you can check it out yourself. Yeah, the, in our editorial work at Lumi, we try to, when we're writing, we just try to link as much as possible. We just, everything, <laughs> if everything was a link, we'd be happy with that just because we, because of the intertwinedness of everything, like we're assuming that someone reading it is trying to solve a problem in their supply chain or something like that. And we're trying to get them to the right place as fast as possible. And there's maybe less of a narrative kind of obligation in any way. Yeah. Whereas when you're trying to tell a story, you kind of want to keep people, get them to the end of the story somehow, I guess. I, I'm just postulating. Yeah. And also, I think... And I, I, I know this because to stay abreast of the field, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts and there are podcasts that I listen to, which I'm not going to name, that definitely feels like homework. It's like mm -hmm. if I were not working in this space, if I were not a climate reporter, I probably wouldn't listen to them because it, they aren't very enjoyable, right. but they are very information filled. And the thing is, is that we're trying to, we're not trying to be anyone's homework assignment. We want to be something that people want to listen to, want to get engaged with. I did a story kind of early on. It was one of my first disaster preparedness, which is pretty salient this summer. And it was right around the time that Oregon was on fire last summer. And a friend who used to live in Oregon, you know, texted me and she was like, I, I heard your episode on disasters and it, it actually didn't make me feel worse. Uh, or yeah, it actually didn't make me feel worse given, you know, this place that I love is burning down right now. And that that's kind of the goal that we're, we're, we're aiming for. We want to inform people. We want to give them information. But at the very minimum, we don't want to make them feel worse. If they feel yeah. better, if they feel motivated, that's great. But we don't want... You're not going to keep coming back if every time you listen to us, you feel like poop. Is there an editorial point of view 
that differs across the different you know places that you've worked in terms of what are our recommendations like when you talk about solutions some solutions might be things that you can do as an individual or you can tell your friends and your family to do or there's some form of you know this needs to be addressed through regulation how does an individual participate in that or this can be you know this is a societal issue like how do you think about the recommendations that you're making yeah so broadly sweeping our editorial sort of vision around solutions is that too much is pushed onto the individual that like we're not going to solve and and you know the data is clear on this we aren't going to solve climate change because you decide to put solar panels on your roof we aren't going to solve climate change because you decide or we aren't going to I shouldn't say solve because you can't, you know, we've locked in, but you're not going to mitigate or offset the worst effects of climate change by refusing the plastic bag at the supermarket. That you should do these things because in general, frugality and reduced consumerism in that way is a good thing, but that really you should be spending your energy on sort of a bigger, more macro scale. So like whether we did an episode on like where we literally modeled how you call your representatives, you know, recommendations could be like, what is your community's disaster plan? You should probably find that out, right? If you're a religious person and you belong to a church or a mosque or synagogue, how is that? How is your community preparing for a disaster? Like really kind of those are the sort of inroads that we're pushing for people. Occasionally we will have like an individual, very individual solution, but generally we try to shy away from those. We really try to push people to think sort of broadly and more holistically about the way they are intersecting with the wider world. How does that translate over to your personal life? Because I'm guessing, you know, your family, friends, and so on, think of you as the go-to person when they're wondering about some of these things. How do you think about your recommendations to your to your family or friends? Well, my parents don't listen to me. <laughs> so that's so they're, they're not even asking. Okay. All right. Easy. Taken care of. <laughs> um, it's really funny Sometimes they'll text me and they'll, like some of them listen to the podcast pretty reliably. Some of them will text me and ask a question. I am pretty much um, a no judgment zone. I think that that's sort of within reason. I guess if you were to buy like a Hummer, I don't know if we could be friends. But um, but like within reason, I don't, that's just like not how I choose to expend my energy. And so if they have a question, I'll answer it. But I don't spend a lot of time telling my friends how to like green their lifestyles or whatever. It's interesting that you you talk about the kind of how do we take some of the responsibility away from individuals. One of the most challenging and frustrating things that I've been working on for the past five years is in the context of business where a lot of decisions get made around, uh, I listened to your great episode that you did around recycling, for example, mm-hmm. um, which we'll, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes. The people who are on the other side of that decision from a business standpoint are people like you and me, but they have a job to do, which is I have to go buy a piece of packaging that is going to fulfill these needs for me and fit into my budget and so on. And it doesn't matter as much (laughs) if they really care about sustainability. They are forced kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those issues that is a negative externality where everyone, even with best intentions, is not able to make the choice that they wish they could. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a frustrating thing. I think that you're right about regulation being a big area for for us to to focus on. One of the ways that I've noticed that in practice has been through the tariffs that the U.S. has implemented. You know, I think that 
for a lot of startups, it was quite painful to have to deal with that because suddenly things that they've been sourcing in China cost, you know, 20%, 30% more all of a sudden. And that is very problematic if you've been relying on it. On the other hand, it's actually really shifted behavior for companies. A lot of startups have who had been sourcing plastic packaging from China are seeing, hey, maybe I can make, I can use paper packaging from the US. And now it's like driving them towards some more sustainable solutions that wouldn't have been open to them before. But that is a very top down thing that the individual supply chain person within a company doesn't really have that much agency over. And, and I wonder, I don't know how you think about that problem overall. Yeah. So, you know, in that recycling episode, we talked to Sarah Pagano, who's the CEO of Blue Land, which is, and actually I met her at the recycling facility, actually. Um, yes, Sarah from Blue Land, uh, episode 97 from, from Well Made. Yeah. Um, and she talks a lot about the difficulties that she encountered. So their whole sort of philosophy is if they remove water from products and it opens up the sort of, you need less packaging and it opens up sort of the options for packaging, right? Like if you're not shipping a liquid, then plastic becomes less necessary kind of a thing. Um, and, you know, she talks about how difficult it was and how re-envisioning it was and from the bottom up. But one of the things that, it you know, makes it worth it, I think, over the long term is that these regulations are coming. They're, you know, the EU has a bunch of regulations increasing around plastic packaging. Um, there have been a few bills floated in the United States that have stalled and are varying degrees, but they're coming. And so it's a question of being proactive versus reactive. Um, and the more that you can do it sort of from the bottom up and sort of integrate it into your processes, the less expensive it will be for you on the back end. And if nothing else, one of the things we've learned from the pandemic is how easy supply chains can get interrupted. So rethinking that through in terms of redundancy, I think is really important. As anyone who found themselves like out of toilet paper this year learned. Yeah, and and I think Canada has one that's active right now. Break free from plastic is one of the big ones that is coming up. Um, Break free from plastic is a proposed new policy. I, I think all of those, it's an interesting f- framing to think, okay, assume that those will occur over the next two to five years in most places, how are you preparing yourself to make sure that your product is not going to incur a huge new cost? And and that is, yeah, that's a really smart way to think about it. And especially when, you know, I talked to someone a while ago and some of these alternative packaging can be one to two cents per unit of the thing that you're shipping. And so when you compare that to the cost that you will then need to incur to pivot, and also the fact that as more people start adopting these alternative products, that those costs will decline, it just becomes less, it's a, a more complicated equation, but it becomes more of a no-brainer, I think. We've done a few episodes on offsetting. Now, one one thing I don't know if you're familiar with, but most people think of carbon offsetting and, and uh, buying carbon credits. Now there's plastic offsetting. Have you come across this at all? I have not. It's a pretty fascinating thing, and I, I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. I'm still doing research, but it's a it's a very similar kind of concept, which is uh, there are companies out there who are collecting ocean plastics or who are diverting plastic waste from rivers to make sure they don't get into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of this idea where if you are buying these offsets, you're preventing some plastic from going into the ocean. It's an interesting concept. And I think as we think about the future of 
uh, some of these regulations. People have been talking forever about carbon taxes, and and we're essentially talking about a plastic tax here. Those seem like the the right thing. I think the fear from governments is being the first mover puts you at a disadvantage because if you're the first uh, state, if you're California or something, and you put this regulation forward, it makes you less competitive. How do you think about getting these regulations kind of adopted countrywide, worldwide? I think about it more on the other side, which is with very limited exception, mostly focused on renewable energy products, carbon offsetting hasn't actually proved itself effective. There have been, especially forest products, carbon offset, there have been a number of studies and kind of reports that show that just because of a variety of issues ranging from actually last year during the big wildfires, a portion of the Oregon forest that California was depending on as part of their carbon offset burned. And it didn't burn, there's a, a certain amount of forest loss that's sort of baked into that carbon offset. It didn't burn as much as sort of that loss was burned, but it burned sort of sooner than anyone was expecting. So that's kind of one issue. There's issue in terms of the accounting, in terms of how much carbon the trees that are actually sort of saved for offsets gets factored in without getting too wonky. Lisa Song at ProPublica did a lot of really amazing reporting around this. And then there's a fact, there's a real question mark about whether those forests are actually conserved. So what we know about carbon offsetting is it doesn't seem fully effective. The way you've so far described kind of plastic offsetting, to me, also leaves out this other sort of side of it, which is like, the plastic waste problem has gotten a ton of attention, but the other side, which is that fossil fuel com- companies, petrochemical companies, are explicitly pivoting towards creating more plastic production. Like as companies get off of fossil fuels directly, as we start using the less oil and gas to continue that flow of oil and gas and that profit making, right? And you know, I don't know if you saw recently the leaked video from Exxon where they openly acknowledge that they is this the one that was in NPR? Uh, yeah, it was in NPR. I think yes. Greenpeace has an investigative unit, which I didn't realize, and they leaked the audio. Exxon issued a statement which effectively disavowed what the person said, like that saying that this person, who I believe was a, an Exxon lobbyist, uh, wasn't speaking on their behalf, but it, but in in their statement, essentially, bear, you know, kind of confirmed that the tape was real and that the person actually said the things that the person said and that he worked for them. Um, and basically, he said that Exxon was in support of carbon offsets in part because they knew that they wouldn't pass, right? So, like, there are companies who have shown themselves over and over again to kind of be sort of broadly speaking kind of bad actors in this space. And so the idea that, like, we can continue to pollute on one side and just sort of suck it up on the other side hasn't been proven to work. We know it hasn't worked in terms of plastic recycling. We know it hasn't so far worked in terms of offsetting. And so I have no reason to believe that suddenly plastic offsetting yeah. would be effective when in all of these other ways it hasn't been to date. Well, and and if you look at the charts, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the amount of plastic that is being created... It's bananas. Is just, I mean, it just I think in the past five years, we've created more plastic than any amount previous to that, like the total amount of plastic that has been generated is just um, exponentially growing still. And a lot of it is being pushed onto sub-Saharan Africa and Asia in the form of the sachet market, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Tell me more. Uh, You probably, the closest example I can think of um, is Capri Sun in the US. So that kind of plastic packaging is called a sachet. What's it called? No, I'm just saying laminates is a material in yes. general, and those yes, films are very those pro- films. problematic. Yeah, 
in kind of the early 2000s, there's this idea about the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, which is the idea that you could make a lot of money off of sort of people who are very low income in developing countries. But the one of the ways that you do that is instead of selling them a 20 gallon bottle of detergent, you sell them a much smaller quantity in a plastic sachet. And that way you can get them to buy your global brand when they otherwise couldn't afford it. They can't afford a a 30 gallon or 60, or I don't know, I don't actually know the size of any of the products I buy, but they can't afford a gallon container or 64 ounces or whatever of detergent that costs too much, but they can buy a sachet at a time, kind of like the equivalent of what you buy when you go to the laundromat or something. But what that has done is that traditionally the way in a lot of countries, the way things were distributed was you would go to the seller and you would bring your own container and they would, they would fill that container with a unit, right? So that has kind of disrupted that local market in front in favor of this global market of global products that you buy in sachets. And that's created this tremendous amount of waste stream and that and in Asia and increasingly companies are pivoting to that same model in sub-Saharan Africa. And what do you see as if I'm an individual in America, what is the, (laughs) is there anything I can do about that? How do you think about recommending things to people? I mean, that is a thing. I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know. But one of the things that we can do, they're doing it essentially because oil is still cheap, right? They're they're trying to find a way. This is only kind of cost effective because oil is still cheap. And there are things that we can do as a country through policy that in the global north to make oil more expensive. And as oil gets more expensive, that becomes less desirable. Yes. And, and and so when you think about the behaviors of individuals, I think one of the other things that has been kind of growing has been this like zero waste movement. Is that mm-hmm. something that you're following uh, much? Yeah, but zero waste, there's a really good TikTok about this, okay. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> which not, is another sign that I'm like yet. way too online. Yeah. <laughs> But basically, zero waste was never intended for individuals. It was intended for companies. Um, And there's a really great, on TikTok and on Instagram, there's a woman named Anna Sack. She's a waste divergement expert. So her whole goal is to avoid getting things in the trash can in the first place. And one of the things that she loves doing, and actually, I did this with her right before the pandemic hit, is she goes through her neighborhood. She lives in Manhattan. She goes through her neighborhood in, in Manhattan in New York City and goes through kind of both residential, but a lot of commercial trash. And she shows how much companies throw out in their trash. You know, one day I went, we went, this isn't plastic, but um, we went to a bakery and they threw out, you know, those giant black garbage bags, like the lawn garbage bags, they threw out four of those filled with bread products. And then I think about like how much I throw out of spoiled food on like in a bad month, you know? And I don't throw out a garbage bag <laughs> worth of like bad lettuce, you know what I mean? But they're throwing out four garbage bags of bread every day. Like they're like nothing I do can touch that. Nothing you and I do can touch that. People, there are pet stores that throw out live animals. There are companies that make you require employees to slash, you know, clothes, sneakers, books. You have to rip the book off the, the book cover off the top of a book to show that it's been remaindered. The amount of waste that just kind of flows through our system, it's just like, I was going to say off the chain, it's just like ridiculous to expect that you and I as individuals can fix that by reducing, by going zero, doing our best to go zero waste. It puts a tremendous amount of onus on us and it forces us. And I think, okay, I think this is a big thing. I think this is why the podcast in general 
when we talk about solutions, when we talk about what you as an individual can do, we very much focus on the, on the intersection between the individual and society. So we don't tell you to cut out every scrap of plastic from your life, because if you wanted to do that, if you really were like, I'm going to have a no waste, zero waste, no plastic lifestyle, that would take a tremendous amount of your time and energy. And that is a tremendous amount of your time and energy that you're not spending agitating for bigger social changes, right? And if everybody does that individually, that is going to touch 10, maybe 15% of our climate problem, of our waste problem. It's not going to make a significant dent. But if you go into your community and you say, we're going to pass a zero waste manufacturing law, right? This is what we're going to do as a community. That is much bigger downstream effects and in the end affects your consumption way more directly with way less effort on your part than you agonizing over every single thing that comes into your home. And and if the biggest way that you can affect change maybe as an individual, coming back to like the supply chain manager type of person, how much do you think about that when you're working on the the podcast, which is engaging people almost career-wise and like how they can move uh, things kind of at a higher scale if they can yeah. work on this problem, like f- within the context of business or politics or otherwise? Yeah. So there's definitely, that's definitely a thing we address. And the way that we address it is we talk to people who are doing it in that space. So that's like talking to Sarah Pagino, that's talking to farmers who are doing regenerative farming on an industrial scale. Um, we talked to two ex-Amazon employees who talked about organizing within Amazon for climate action. Um, and so a lot of that comes from the people that we talk to and the people who are doing it in that space with the idea that like if we talk to enough people and we go out into enough people who are doing and implementing solutions in ways that they see fit, that you at home might get an idea for how you might shape your life in that way. With the podcast, do you have <laughs> internally an idea of what what would happen if it's successful? What What would the world look like if this conversation gets to the right ears, gets to the right people, or somehow like permeates into our culture somehow? I don't know if we really, I mean, we have a joke that we're, we're going to show up every week until climate change is fixed, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which means, you know, job security, man. Um, yeah. No, uh, to your point, we haven't really talked about it on that level. Like, what does it look like to sort of affect big change? And I think it's because, you know, people are weird. <laughs> like, you know, as a species, humans are complicated. I don't think we have a rubric for success. I don't think anyone, especially in the climate space, is really attempting to do the thing that we're attempting to do. And so I don't know what success looks like beyond getting people to listen to us. That's like a first step. One of the things that ha- is interesting about podcasting, as you probably know, is it does create a kind of intimacy between you and your listeners. And so it is fun getting emails from people telling us the things that they've done. And that's another thing that we recommend. Or sometimes people will reach out to their political officials on Twitter or on, on social media and tag us in their reach out. So that's pretty fun and pretty engaging. It has been a conversation in the past, sort of how to re-gauge success. But on the other hand, like we are not advocacy, which is a weird thing to, to say. After I've been like, we tell people all these solutions, we sort of draw the line at like, And kind of our idea is just generally is that so much of journalism is focused on the problem that Mm. we're going to focus on the solution. And by going through, you know, at this, not yet hundreds, but at this point, we've done dozens of episodes highlighting different solutions. We're essentially kind of a buffet 
Hmm. of solutions and that you can pick and choose sort of a la carte how you want to engage with the issue of climate change. But where we generally stop short is of advocating and saying, this is the climate solution. This is the one thing that you need to do to solve climate change. One exception, which is during the election, we did come out and support, the podcast came out and supported Biden for kind of obvious reasons. But generally, it's a little bit more one level above, I think, straight advocacy, where we're like, these are, you know, when we tell people you should talk about climate change, you should reach out to your elected officials, we're assuming that you're a climate interested person in a red state or in a blue state. You know what I mean? Like, it's still the same guidance. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, what you're saying in effect is <laughs> step one is get everyone informed. Yeah. And then, you know, allow people to follow a path, um, maybe that is personally something that they feel they can affect and give them some starting points. I'm guessing that you can see this just from the numbers of people who are downloading your show, but do you feel like that step one of getting people informed is working? Are are you seeing that growing people who are curious about it or people who really want to engage in it? How do you think that has been changing over the past few years? Well, we've only been around for about a year. <laughs> So we're babies. But you've been writing about this topic for a long time. Do you sense yeah. that, that things are, are turning in terms of public support, public engagement? So I think for me, actually, pre-podcast, I've had sort of two big tipping points. One, I think, was more me personally, but also I think a lot of people felt this way. But the first was in 2017 when um, a lot of the West was on fire. And that was also the year where there was just like a bananas number of hurricanes, including Hurricane Harvey. That was the one where... There was that epic storm of Barbuda, like in the eye of the storm, which is covering the entire island or, but of Barbuda. And then in 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with this report basically saying, like, what happens if we do constrain how much the planet warms under climate change to 2 degrees Celsius versus 1.5 degrees Celsius? The Paris Climate Agreement, which is sort of the global compact on voluntary agreement on sort of reigning in climate emissions, effectively pledges countries to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions such that they reach levels at least below two degrees Celsius, but ideally at no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're somewhere around 1, 1.1 right now. So like everything that you've seen this summer so far this June, that's 1.1, baby. Um, And what they found was like two degrees Celsius is actually going to be more catastrophic than previously thought. We pretty much lose most of the coral reefs at two degrees C. I think the poles become ice free more year round. Like we like the changes are really far more catastrophic than you would imagine from a half degree change. And that report for a very wonky UN report blew up. Like people who I felt like never paid attention to climate change before were suddenly starting to pay attention. And I think it was kind of the intersection of what happened the summer of twenty seventeen in terms of um Climate change, and then following what happened in 2018, um, 2018, I believe, was also the year of the Greek fires. That was when, like, Europe had a lot of fires. And then this IPCC report came, and then I believe that led into 2019 when the koalas were dying. <laughs> like, everyone was freaking out about the koalas. They, by the way, are fine. I believe are fine. It's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but the koalas are fine, uh, apart from the chlamydia. Um, <laughs> sorry. I haven't been sorry. I haven't been following the koala uh, chlamydia. Uh, yeah, they they, they apparently have a lot of chlamydia. Um, 
which is, un- I believe, unrelated to climate change. I, th- I just think there were a number of back-to-back events that suddenly people started becoming aware that climate change was not this thing that was happening, that was going to happen, that is this thing that was already present. Um, I feel like that receded a little with the specter of the pandemic last year. And I think it's coming back this year because it's already, you know, the multiple heat waves out West, it's June. You know, there've been multiple heat wet, or it's July, <laughs> one time. But in June of 2021, there were multiple heat waves, you know, both on the West Coast and the East Coast. And it says something that Boston hit, I believe, 99 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time ever in June. And nobody noticed because the West was so hot already. You know, like 99 in Boston compares nothing to, I believe, like 117, 118 degrees, you know, in sort of the Pacific Northwest Um, and like what's happening in British Columbia. And I think there have just been enough of these catastrophic events in the United States, close to where people live, people having to relocate a lot. That's starting to freak people out and realize they're like, oh, no, wait, we have a problem. And it sucks because it would have been great. Like we wouldn't, the problem wouldn't be so bad if we'd done something 10 or 15 years ago. And how does that translate into engagement that you're seeing now you mentioned people emailing you and kind mm-hmm. of reacting to the show what what can you tell from just the past year of doing the the podcast yeah i think the biggest difference and it's part of why i agreed to leave the times to join the podcast is that i think a lot of people know what the problem is very little people know what to do about it and there's very little in sort of the traditional print media that helps people figure out what they should do with this energy that they're feeling with this recognition of this problem. And I think broadly, I think that feeling is very acute when it comes to climate change, but it also made me really aware how more broadly speaking, that's just kind of a failing in media. Um, I, until I became a reporter, I don't know your situation on this, but until I became a reporter, I didn't even really understand kind of the public comment period that government has where they propose a legislation, they open it up to public comment. Anyone can sort of chime in and say, hey, this is how I feel about this government regulation, right? It's very rarely articulated to the public, like you have the ability to weigh in on this, right? That I increasingly think, and I think moving forward, we're going to try and doing a little bit more of this in our newsletter. That is a thing the media should be doing, right? Like, But often the way we treat politics and often the way we treat government is you go and you vote every two to four years and then you sort of watch what they do in D.C. or in your state legislature. It's a spectator sport, right? But it's not. It's a a communal activity and they are responsible to us. And it's our job as citizens to hold our elected officials accountable. And it's our job as citizens to hold them, to make them transparent. And it's our job as citizens to weigh in on the things that they're doing. Earlier, you asked sort of like, how do my friends reach out to me because of the work that I'm doing? One funny thing that um, actually came up last night is a friend of mine texted me. She's been looking sort of Zillow, you know, as many millennials do, sort of like fake up house shopping. And one of the things she did was she sent me a home that she was looking at, like fake looking at in, uh, in New England. And she was like, 10 out of 10 flood risk is bad, right? And I was like, yes, it's very bad. And she sent me this home. I'm not going to say exactly where, but it's in New England. It's on the Connecticut River. And it's a 10 out of 10 flood risk. And I was like, not only is this absurd that this home is in this location, it's like right on the banks of the Connecticut River. I was like, the Connecticut River flooded catastrophically in 2011 during Irene. It is absolutely unhinged that this house is here. And she was like, it just sold last year. And I pulled it up fully. And I realized not only had this home just sold last year, 
so 2020, but that the home had only been built at first I looked at it and I was like, Oh, this is a house that is probably poorly sighted, but it's poorly sighted for a while. And somebody bought it assuming like, Oh, well, it's never flooded before. And that is not the case. The home was built in 2019. So somebody thought in 2019 that it was a good idea to build a home in the middle of a floodplain. Hmm. And somebody thought in 2020 that it was a good idea to buy this home in the middle of a floodplain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where it comes out a lot. Is my friends will kind of aspirationally text me homes and say, this is bananas, right? Yeah. And I think everyone who starts to absorb some of this information, it's like the stages of grief or something. Like you're, you're, you've got some sort of denial, but then there's a, a feeling of panic or overwhelmedness or something that is not particularly actionable. And I think that that's what uh, is great about what you're doing with the podcast. Are there things that make you optimistic about what you're seeing from behaviors of whether it's, you know, individuals or politicians or companies that you want to promote or encourage? Or I guess what makes you optimistic these days when you see kind of that dichotomy between how problematic our track seems to be and what action is being taken? I should admit that I don't really run on hope. It's not like an, an emotion that drives me. I grew up very Catholic. And so I'm mostly motivated by obligation and a moral sense of right and wrong, which is very old timey, I feel like. Well, <laughs> I, but but somehow somewhere in in that guilt or whatever, there's a there's a aspiration that there's something right on the other side. If there is this concept of right, and are people? Do you think that there is a progress aside from the awareness factor that there's action being taken that that somehow makes you optimistic or something? I mean, there there are definitely people who are very excited. You know, we we profile this. Um, I think he's technically a kelp farmer, um, Brent Smith, who actually, if you watch the Climate Caucus on CNN in 2019, I think, he was one of the ones who asked the question about like the Blue New Deal or whatever. He's done kind of incredible work around trying to like move the needle on kelp farming. And kelp farming is really cool because it happens in the ocean. It's very sustainable. It's pretty vertical. Like it's not just kelp. You do kelp and you do oysters. And you can still use the water above it for like recreational purposes. It doesn't, it's not like land where like it becomes exclusionary in that way. So, so there are people who are doing really interesting things. Other things that I, I kind of, I don't know if it gives me hope or if I, if I'm an optimistic, but something that I guess delights me a little bit is the absolute complete unwillingness for kind of like the youth climate activists. There's a level of rigidity. There's a level of unwillingness they're just uncompromising. They're like, mm -hmm. this is the reality of climate change. This is what the science says. You need to step up and yep. you need to do it. And we're not going to compromise on this because physics doesn't compromise. If I were an elected official, I would probably find quite galling, but I'm not an elected official. So I just find it very delightful. You touched on sci-fi very briefly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've been watching a lot of sci-fi. We had uh, one of my friends who's a, a, a sci-fi author now on the podcast a few episodes ago talking about the purpose of optimistic sci-fi. And I think there's something there in, in terms of there is a sort of like doom and gloom porn kind of obsession with sci-fi and like these dystopian futures. 
is that what you're... <laughs> I mean, that's like 99% of what is being created. So I'm assuming that's what you're consuming. But I wonder if there is a almost uh, an imperative for sci-fi to show us the optimistic future of here's what we should be trying to go for uh, rather than here's what we should be trying to avoid. So I wrote an essay for this anthology called All We Can Save called Wakanda Doesn't Have Suburbs. And I sort of posited that that was kind of, you know, sort of based in Afrofuturism. And I posited that like, if you actually look at, if you spend a lot of time watching frame by frame of what Wakanda looks like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, um, Black Panther, it sort of lays out frame by frame in many ways what we know we need for kind of a more sustainable future. So like, it doesn't have paved roads. It has mass transit. I mean, they also have vibranium and their cars fly. So there are like some things we're going to have difficulty replicating, but um, it's basically an urban core and then a rural, kind of like what the United States kind of looked like a couple hundred years ago, but it's an urban core and then a rural countryside. And there's no sort of undulating suburbs in the end. And the urban core has a lot of trees in it, has a lot of verdant in it. And it's kind of designed to be more livable. And I think a lot of um, US cities are designed to live in. But on the other side, and I'm pretty on record as being obsessed with this, is The Expanse. Okay. Yeah, I haven't watched that, that yet. But people. Oh my God, it's free, so good. Right? <laughs> it is so good. Okay. And if nothing else, you need to load up on YouTube the opening credits of it. Um, because the opening credits show climate change. The, um, and I actually got to talk to Noreen Schenker, the showrunner. It's one of the best shows that I've seen that kind of weaves in climate change throughout mm. kind of the plot. But it's not a climate change story. It's just one that acknowledges that climate change has happened, but that it's a little bit different. It's not a utopia, but it's not a dystopia. We joke that it's a topia, which apparently is not a word. <laughs> but <laughs> if it were a word, that's what it would be, which is sort of like humanity has managed to sort of like limp on. Like right. New York City still exists because of massive seawalls. Parts of Baltimore kind of still exist. Parts of it are outside of the seawall and like were flooded. More realistic, I it's guess. It's more realistic. Um, Anchorage is an island. Um, and they sort of visually show over and over again what climate change has done to humanity. And sort of, and Nareen uh, is a, a physicist, uh, I think he's a PhD in electrical engineering or something from Cornell. Like he knows his stuff. When they're on Earth, they change the colors to show sort of like because of the increased concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, the sky would look different. So it's not quite a utopia, but it is a story that sort of shows that humanity can have a future, <laughs> that it is a solid. Um, if not a solvable problem, a manageable problem. The flip side of that is it almost sort of answers the question of what happens if we address climate change and we don't sort of address it in a way that undergirt that touches sort of all of the other reasons why climate change is happening, which is climate change is happening on a functional level because we, we are burning all of these fossil fuels and that releases greenhouse gas emissions. That's practically why, why climate change is happening. But climate change is happening also for all of these social reasons. It's how we net together our economic system. It's how we think about labor. It's how we think about class. It's how we think about race. And The Expanse sort of is a political drama set in space some hundred years, some period in the future that is still wrestling with those questions. And that sounds, I'm going to watch it because now you're probably like the third person in the past <laughs> couple of weeks. I don't know. I, this show has been around for like a couple of years, right? It's season, man. It even got canceled. Yeah. It was on sci-fi and then Amazon wow. picked it up. Okay. Uh, it's six season and will be this fall. It'll be the last season. And it's eight, I'm actually nine books. It's nine books. The ninth one isn't out yet. I'm in. I'm looking at the books literally right now. <laughs> Are there any other uh, recommendations you want to throw out there for books, shows, podcasts, things that you've been getting into lately before we wrap up? 
So I have not watched this, but apparently Loki has a climate change oh, yeah. plotline, which I haven't seen. I have been watching it. It's it's I can see it. Yes, a little bit. And then Ragnarok, which is a weird, not actually that great Norwegian drama, I guess, involving gods in Norway and climate change. There's a climate change subplot. Well, Ragnarok is like the end of the world in uh, Norse mythology. And the world <laughs> so might end. That, yeah. I don't know. They've only done two seasons. There might be a third. Okay. <laughs> uh, great. Any other recommendations you want to make outside of the world of fiction that you think just you, you mentioned uh, for those who, who are the more nerdy listeners who want to go into the science or those those sources that you look at? What what are those things that you're kind of drawing knowledge from or the latest studies and that, and that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when you're a reporter, you kind of get a cheat, which is you're on all of these like press release lists for different journals. And mm. so you get to sort of scan through and see what's coming in. And so that's one way that I keep up a lot. Um, Carbon Brief does a pretty good newsletter on climate change. If you're into ag, Politico has a really good agriculture newsletter. It is paid. It's not free, but it's, it's quite good. Evergreen Action has a newsletter that's pretty decent. Atmos has a decent newsletter. And then Emily Atkin at Heated has a newsletter. Those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll put some of those links in, in the show notes. And, and of course, uh, people should listen to your podcast that people can find on Spotify. Yes, How to Save a Planet, uh, hosted by Alex Bloomberg and Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. She's a great person to follow as well on Twitter. She is. Uh, even better, I think, on Insta. Okay. I'm not I'm not on her Insta. I will. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, not on the, I'm not on TikTok, so that <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get uh, sucked into that if I can. I'm not on TikTok, but I am on Instagram and I watch the... There's And there, I know I'm on Twitter and Twitter has feeds that are nothing but reposts from TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I get my TikTok. Kendra, it's been... Awesome to talk to you. Uh, I hope people go and check out your work. And yeah, we'll check in in uh, 10 years and see where we're at. <laughs> oh, I'll be in New Zealand. Sorry. <laughs> no, this has been great. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review. It could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.